um, and it reads like this. The angel of the Lord came. He sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? They said, Hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now, the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. This is my favorite part of this passage. The Bible says the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to them, Lord, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it was were one man. Church, let's pray. Not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name we give glory. Lord, as we continue in our worship together, would you help us be hearers and doers of your word? Lord, would you grant me the help to make it my ambition in this moment to please you and you alone? Let your will be done in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's, it's true that in life's problems, Sometimes those who are most affected are the ones who are the most effective in solving them. In the book, True North, the author highlights how many leaders understand their calling through their personal stories. For Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, his desire to create this business was not initially found in his love for coffee, but from a family crisis. As a young boy, his father lost his job due to a life-changing injury, and they didn't have work, workmen's compensation, and his family lost their benefits, and with this young family with multiple kids, their family found themselves in a crisis. And as he got older, this crisis was a driving force 
for Howard to create a business where health care was essential and employees were treated fairly in his corporation. His calling in his work developed in a crisis. Many of us today are consumed with the idea of purpose. We're consumed with the idea of purpose and calling, but many of us are confused about what that really means. When we think of calling, we think of entrepreneurship, vocation, our nine to five. We think about the things that benefit us, which are good things, but those things might not be necessarily connected to the kingdom. Tilden Edwards, he says this about calling. He says, calling is a much abused word today. In the church, it can be a little more than a pious euphemism for doing what we feel like doing. Such abuse, abuse is brought to celebration in a secular culture when doing what we feel like doing, attained by any way we feel like doing it, seems often to be what lies behind career development. Calling is more than career development. Calling is about obedience. Calling is about the kingdom. One author says it like this, calling is not only a matter of being and doing what we are, but also of becoming what we are not yet are called by God to be. Calling is about standing in your God-given potential, but also embracing your God-given limitations in order to do things that you only can do with God's help. Book of Judges, we see this, this young man, this country boy, encounters God in a faith crisis. But through his crisis, through his story, his calling is revealed through his questions. Today, family, I want to talk about God has a way of showing up in crisis in order to reveal our calling. As we read the book of Judges, if I was to sum it up in one sentence, it would be this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In this context, Israel is now in the promised land that God has promised that he would bring them into. Through the Joshua generation, they've been brought into this place, and now Joshua has left them with this reminder to remember what God has saved you from so that you will live to serve him. But the Joshua generation dies, and this new generation comes up that does not know the Lord. This generation compromises their faith. They're called to drive out the enemies that are in place in 
Canaan, but because of their idols. They believe that they can coexist with a sinful culture. And God knew this. God knew that if they lived with the Canaanites, that they would end up living like Canaanites. They find themselves in this cycle of sin. They are consumed with the culture. Sin promises them fulfillment, but it leads them to fatal consequences. When I was in elementary school, probably fourth or fifth grade, I think I came home with a, uh, a good report card, and I was like, man, we didn't, we didn't have any uh, pets. We didn't, in the country, we didn't do inside pets. We do every, everything's outside. <laughs> and so I was like, man, I'm not a, I like dogs. I don't really like cats, but I want to, I want to get something. I'm going to go to Walmart, ask my mama, man, I want to get me a goldfish. Just get a goldfish and, you know, he won't do too much. Um, it'll be cool. Just see how it goes. Cool. Bring it back. And I'm just watching it swim in my, you know, little fish tank I, I bought him. Um, and I read the instructions, and it says you, you have to feed the goldfish once a day. First day I fed him, and I got bored. <laughs> and um, I'm thinking that the goldfish is like me. I like eating once, twice, three times, four times, sometimes five, six times a day. I, I like to eat. If you've seen me eat, you know I, I love to eat. Uh, and uh, the, the next day I said, you know what? This goldfish must be like me. I'm going to feed it multiple times. Fed him in the morning for lunch, dinner. Next morning, I wake up, and the goldfish is flipped over. Look, what, ha what's, what happened to the goldfish? He was completely fine yesterday. My, my dad come into the room. Boy, what did you do to this goldfish? <laughs> well, I, I, I fed it. I, I fed it morning, afternoon, dinner time. He read the instructions. He says, no, you killed the goldfish. You, you fed the goldfish too much, and now the goldfish is dead. Church, that's what sin does. It leaves you, it promises you some type of fulfillment if you feed it enough. But if you continue to feed your sin, it leads to fatal consequences. These people during this time, they worship the idols in the culture, they are then oppressed by the people in the culture. They cry out for deliverance from the Lord, and then the Lord in his grace and his patience, he raises up judges, liberators, those who administer justice to deliver his people. And in Judges 6, we hear the story of Gideon, a young man from the tribe of Manasseh who endured seven years of slavery, and now who finds himself afraid, confused, disoriented in his situation, but now he has an encounter with the Lord. And God has a way of revealing calling in crisis. First few verses we see in chapter 6, starting at, Verse 11, we see Gideon's questions. Angel of the Lord comes, he sits, and he's watching Gideon work, threshing 
wheat in a wine press. For a little background information, the people of God have been oppressed. The Midianites and others have pillaged the land. They burned down their businesses. They've gentrified the land. And now the people are experiencing food insecurities, job loss. God has handed his people over to oppression because of their idolatry. This is God's passive judgment. Oftentimes when we think about judgment, we think of an angry God who punishes sin because he's filled with rage and he is ready to punish those who disobey him. But no, this is a different type of judgment. This is a passive judgment where God allows his people to do whatever they want to do. He lets them do whatever they want to do and allows them to experience the weight of their consequences. He allows them to see how abusive and oppressive sin really is in order for them to repent and turn back to him. My, my father-in-law, he would say it like this when people don't listen. He says, Tim, I, I'm here to tell people the facts and let time tell them the truth. This is what, he, he gonna like that when he, when he hit his sermon too. <laughs> this is what God is doing. He's telling them the facts that the wages of sin is death. But he loves them and is gracious and is patient in such a way that he allows them to feel the weight of their consequences. God hates sin. But oftentimes, that's not the end of that sentence. Church, God hates sin because he loves you. We have to be reminded that this is an expression of God's love, that he disciplines those he loves. This angel of the Lord, a visible physical representation of the Lord. Some would consider this a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus. He sits under the tree watching as Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine, in a wine press, anxious and afraid. He's hiding from the Midianites. And God comes to him in his place of fear. He calls him a mighty, valiant warrior. He assures him of God's presence. This angel of the Lord calls him something, someone that he is not. But he will become through the presence of God. The angel of the Lord's claim is should be encouraging and empowering for getting it in his place of fear, but it only provokes his frustration. The Lord says, I'm with you. But Gideon says, if the Lord was with me, if the Lord was with us, then why? Gideon, he's asking questions but based on the text, I don't know if he really wants the answers to those questions because he's already drawn conclusions about what God is doing. If the Lord is with us, then why? Why are my people being oppressed? Why are we going through 
slavery? Why don't we have food on the table? Why are we suffering for seven long years? His conclusion to his experience is God has abandoned us. Gideon grew up in the church. He heard his uncles, his aunts, his grandparents tell him of the story of how God brought them out of Egypt. Ten plagues he sent to Pharaoh in order to liberate his people from slavery. How God parted the waters by his power and his people walked through on dry land. How God preserved them in the wilderness, gave them manna from heaven to feed them and gave them fire by night, a cloud by day to keep them and guide them through the wilderness. He says, I'm heard, I heard all the stories. I can quote all the scriptures, but right here and right now, I don't believe anything I've heard. In his fear, in his anxiety, he's unable to realize that his very presence in the promised land is a picture of God's faithfulness to his people. In his fear, he's drawn conclusions about his experience that's not rooted in God's faithfulness, but are guided by his anxiety and distress. He's unable to see the root of the problem, which is idolatry, because of the fruit of their collective pain. His fear, in his fear, he believes that God has abandoned the people when in truth the people have abandoned God. Church, this is a reminder for us in this journey, this walk, this struggle of faith. That faith is belief, but faith is hard work. It's a fight for interpretation. Faith is the work of seeing life based on what God has said despite what we see. Rather than understanding what God says based on what we see. He looks at his situation. He looks at the struggles. He looks at their depravity. He looks at their problems and he says God cannot be with us because if God was with us, none of these things would be happening. This is the very reason why Paul reminds the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10 and 4 to take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. To not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, our experiences can shape our interpretation of God's character. Gideon is asking deep questions. He's heard these stories, but in his place of distress, his place of fear, his place of pain, he's unable to see the goodness and the faithfulness of God because of his situation. I love that Gideon asked those deep questions, and the Bible is honest about this experience. But I love how the Lord helps him recognize 
that his questions reveal his calling. First, we see Gideon's questions, and then we see God's call. Verse 14, the Bible says the Lord turned to him. Church, the Lord turned to him. His questions and even his faulty conclusions draw the Lord closer. God is not timid or offended by his questions. God is not frustrated with Gideon, even though Gideon is frustrated with God. This gives us the Freedom Church to be honest with the Lord. The Lord turns to him. The Lord turns to us even as we are in struggles around trusting him. This is where it gets good. This is where we see the calling be revealed. God is basically saying to Gideon, Gideon, you see the problem, and I'm going to call you to solve the problem. He says, go with the, the strength you have and deliver my people from their oppression. I've already given you assurance that I'm with you. His calling is connected to his going. He says your deliverance is connected to your obedience. Gideon, you are waiting for God to do something and God is waiting on you. Being created in the image of God, we think about that truth, that that means we have value, that we have dignity and significance. Our identity is rooted not in, based on what we do, but based who's created us in his image and his likeness. But being created in the image of God also comes with a responsibility in the world to rule in the earth under God's rule as co-partners with God to accomplish his purpose. God is saying, if there's going to be deliverance in the land, I'm going to do it through you. Church, God is not powerless to change things, but we do not experience his power when we don't walk in obedience. God is saying in order for change to happen, the change we want to see, the change that we need, it, call, it reminds us that we are called to allow him access and authority to every area of our lives. God says, Gideon, you must go in order for the people to be delivered, to be sanctified and met for the master's use. God is looking for an outlet. Just as you have a home and you have electricity, you have power in the house, but if you have no outlets, you won't experience the power. The power is available in the house, but it is experienced when you have an outlet. And in the church, God has all power. He lives in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God's power is available. It is limitless, but it's expression is limited when he does not have outlets to express it. 
he's calling Gideon to look and pay attention to his questions, to pay attention to the crisis, his struggles, and that reveals something that not God is called to do, but what Gideon is called to do through God's power. Gideon's questions actually drive him to a work he's called to do. His calling is under the question. The things that he is complaining about to God are the things that God is calling him to do for God. Gideon is shocked by what God says. Gideon first is asking the question, why God? And now he's asking, how? I, I, I love this part of this passage because God's call exposes Gideon's self-image. He hears God's call and he immediately says, Lord, how can I go? My family is the weakest in the land and I'm the youngest out of my family. This divine call forces him to deal with himself. I like Gideon because he's honest with the Lord. He acknowledges his insecurities as he hears the call. Before the call, there's an outward concern about what God needs to do. But now after the call, he has an inward anxiety based on who he actually is. How am I supposed to deliver my people? Do you see where I come from? Do you see the family of origin? Do you see what my daddy was like? Do you see how my mother treated me? Do you see the neighborhood I grew up in? Do you see the color of my skin? Do you see the lack of resources that I have? Gideon is struggling because he's saying, God, you would have never called me if you really saw me. You wouldn't have, you would call somebody else that's more qualified, who got all of their stuff together. I love this, that Gideon acknowledges this truth because this reveals a problem with us. Because some of us, church, are not being used by God because we're too strong. Some of us are too strong to be used by God. Our images are too strong. Our perceptions are too important. How we look and where we are from and how we think in our circles, all of those things determine to us what God is calling us to do. We're too strong in terms of what we image ourselves as in this world. We want to be seen as strong rather than experiencing and acknowledge our weakness in order for us to experience God's strength. We come to church concerned about how strong, how put together, how well off we actually are. And this cuts us off from being used by God in the ways he desires for us. But the Bible says God's strength is not made perfect in strength. 
God, his strength is made perfect in weakness. That the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, brothers and sisters, consider your what? Your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no man may boast in his presence. Church, I want to remind you this morning, when God called you, when he saved you, he knew everything that you're learning about yourself. He knew the insecurities. He knew the limitations. He knew the weaknesses. He knew the struggles. He saw you as you were, and surely if he saw you as you already were, he can still call you to do something powerful in his kingdom. Gideon's concern around the calling church does not reveal what God thinks about Gideon. It reveals what Gideon thinks about himself. This crisis, it exposes Gideon's self-hatred. What he really thinks about himself, what he thinks about his family, what he thinks about his situation, what he thinks about his background. But God has a way of revealing calling in crisis and assuring us of his presence even when we have to deal with the insecurities we face in our lives. He promises to apply his power and his grace. God's grace in this passage outlasts his doubt. His faithfulness is stronger than his fears. He tells Gideon, all you need to know is that I'm with you. You don't need to know the details of how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. All you need to know is you have my power and you have my presence. Tells Gideon that your assurance in your calling is not based on what you know about yourself. It's not based on your background, your family of origin. No, your assurance is in my presence. That I'm a man, I'm not a man that I should lie and I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the promise that God always gives. It's the word to Moses, the word he gave to Joshua, the word he gave to Isaiah, the word he gave to Jeremiah. I will be with you. And through my presence, you will accomplish my purposes, not by your strength, but by my strength and for my glory. Gideon is in the process of transformation. Calling is not just something that we do, but it's something we become. It's not only doing what God has called us to do in the world, but for us to wrestle and struggle and grapple with what God is doing in our hearts. To learn how to embrace God's love and assurance, even in the face of deep struggle and issue. Gideon is in the process of transformation. Transformation, church, happens when Lordship changes. When we move from our interpretations, when we move from our, us being the ones who determine what we do in our lives, when we move away from our will and say, not my will, your will be done. 
Gideon is wrestling. But God is present in the wrestle. God is gracious in the wrestle, and he will not let Gideon go because the work is too great. And God is too good to allow him to stay in the place that he is. He shows him that God has the power to use broken vessels. This last week, I had the privilege of talking to a young lady for my job. Her name was Amaya Elam, a young black girl from Waycross, Georgia, deep south. She's uh, sharing this story. She's sharing this project that she's created, and I'm asking her questions around it. It's the, the I Am Project. She takes young black girls from second grade to eighth grade, and uh, bi-monthly, bi they get together and they have a educational course. They feed them food and then they braid them hair. They, they braid their hair. Uh, it's a project that's meant to instill confidence and power and to remind them of their self-worth and their value. And I'm just listening and I'm, and I'm encouraged. And she said, she said Mr. Mr. Tim, one thing that we do is I had some volunteers come in and uh, they, they brought these, uh, these pots and we were going to do some, some gardening. And I, and I thought about this idea. I said, all the girls came in second grade eight, to eighth grade. She says, I want you to write down everything you don't like about yourself. I want you to write down what you don't like about how you look and your hair and how you dress, where you're from. I want you to write down all those things. So the girls, they have to deal with those perceptions. They write down everything and uh, they, they name them out loud. And, and so she brought the volunteers in and they had these, these pots and she says, this is what, we, we're, what we're gonna do. I want you to give me everything you wrote down. And they, they took the pots, put them in front of each girl and they put the soil in the pot. And she took the names, everything that they named themselves and they, they crumbled them up. And then they put them in the pot. And then they put some seeds in the pot. And then they watered the seed. And she said, all right, next week we're going to check, check and see if we're going to continue to check on the growth. Within a month, they had these beautiful wildflowers. I, I, I said, that thing is, is preaching to me. She said, she said, Mr. Simpson, I wanted to remind them that even in the brokenness of life, there's still beauty. And I, I said, you know what? That reminds me of my God. Because he takes everything we think of ourselves. He says, go ahead, be honest with me. I want you to write it out. Tell me about where you're from. Tell me about your background. Tell me about your insecurities. Tell me about your limitations. Tell me about your sins, and I'm going to read it out loud. I want you to name everything you think about yourself. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this pot, and I'm going to get this soil, and I'm going to take everything that you think of yourself, and I'm going to crumble it up and put it in the pot. And I'm going to put my seeds of grace in the pot, and I'm going to water it with the power of my word. And I want you to watch what I can do in brokenness. I can still bring beauty out of brokenness. Church, the beauty of this text, what God is calling us to do is to stop making excuses. It's not how old you are. 
not how young you are. It's not based on your giftedness or your lack of giftedness. It's not about how much money you make or the lack thereof. It's not about your circle. It's not about what you do, what you cannot do. Yes, God is gracious and he allows us to name those things, but those things never qualified us for the call. It's time for us to not allow our backgrounds, our past, our sins, our struggles to determine what we think God is calling us to do. God knew you from the foundations of the world. You were knitted in your mother's womb, beautifully and wonderfully made. Every single day in your life was written out in his book. He knew what you would do before you did it. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, when you did not know God, when you did not love God, when you did not want God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. You do not qualify yourself. He's already qualified you and he saved you. This is the gift that we have to give him your weakness. Give him your struggles. Give him your problems. Give you your, his, your sin. Give him every single thing that you think about yourself, the things that are true, the things that are untrue, and watch what he does when you place it in his hands. Watch what God can do. God is so committed to his glory that he will not allow anything you think, anything that others think about you to deter him from what he wants to accomplish through you. Church, there is nothing you can do. Nothing you cannot do that can keep you from God's calling. God is committed to his kingdom. He's committed to his glory. And he's committed to you. He's committed to this church. And he's committed to the work he began that he surely will finish in us. Gideon's crisis reveals his questions. And through that, God reveals his calling. Only application I have today for us churches, this is a reflection. Are you doing what God is calling you to do? And with that application, I want you to talk to one person today and ask that question. Are you doing what God has called you to do? Do you know what God is calling you to do? And I want that to be a place of encouragement and prayer. We have to move from thinking that calling is connected to vocational ministry. Every Christian is called a full-time ministry. If that's, that doesn't mean that it's connected to your money and your resources, no, all of us are called to ministry. And God has entrusted us with gifts. He's, in, he's given us his Holy Spirit to assure us that his presence is with us. And as we walk in his presence, he will give us the power to accomplish the purpose he has for us as a body. The calling is always connected to the kingdom for his glory and for the good of his church and for the world around us.
Church, what is your calling? <laughs> Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Calling is such a, a heavy weight to see ourselves and to see our limitations and to still be called to something we know we cannot do in our own power. Lord, you are calling us to an uncomfortable dependence. Your grace is in weakness. Your grace is in the honesty and the limitations and the struggle. God, I pray that whatever is a barrier for us to keep us away from what you're calling us to do, would you break down strongholds? Would you break down the lies? Would you break down any type of attack or plan that the enemy has set forth to keep us away from what you've called us to do? Help us to wrestle well. Help us not to see wrestle as a sign of doubt or unbelief, but as a sign that we are trying and seeking to walk by faith and not by sight. Lord, remind us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Remind us, God, that your Holy Spirit is present. Fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we will learn to yield to the calling, to the word that you've given each of us individually and also as a corporate body. Be with us, God, as we seek to be with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.